Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Fast Talk, your source for the science of cycling performance. This episode of Fast Talk is brought to you by Whoop. Whoop is a fitness wearable that provides personalized insights on the performance of your sleep, how recovered your body is, and how much stress you put on your body throughout the day from your workouts and the normal stressors of life. What's great with Whoop is that every day when you get up, you get a recovery score based on your HRV, resting heart rate, and sleep performance that can be used as an indicator to how to approach your day. The Whoop app has built-in features like the Strain Coach, which actually gives you target exertion goals worked out optimally for the level of intensity your body is signaling it can handle, perfect for working out at home. And based on how strenuous your day is, the app has a built-in sleep coach, which actually lets you know how much sleep you should be getting so you can wake up and be recovered based on your performance goals, which you can send. Whoop is offering 50% off with the code FASTTALK. That's F-A-S-T-T-A-L-K at checkout. Go to Whoop, that's W-H-O-O-P dot com, and enter FASTTALK at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, and train smarter. Optimize your performance with Whoop. This is episode 118, and it is a question and answer session. We've got another guest coach today. Mr. Grant Holicky, co-owner of Forever Endurance. You've likely heard him on the Off Course podcast, and you've likely heard him on this show before. It's been a while since we've had you on. Welcome, Grant. Hey, thanks, guys. Great to be here. Today, we've got a lot of great questions from our listeners out there. Why don't we jump right into a big topic first? We'll start with this question from Ernest Boscovich, he's from the Netherlands. He's asked some really great questions before. This one sort of opens up the door to a really big topic. It's about sweat rates. He writes, one thing that was missed in the episode 111 with Dr. Chung on heat and cold myths is the sweat rate discussion. I wonder generally about maximal sweat rates versus maximal water uptakes versus lower performance. He goes on to ask, a, a long list of really great questions. We're not going to answer all of those specific questions here because we're going to do an entire episode on this. It's such good material. But Trevor, I want to turn it over to you to give a few a few thoughts on sweat rates generally. You sent me this question last night of let's address this tomorrow, and I read it and just went, wow, we're going down that rabbit hole. <laughs> and my immediate response was, let's get Dr. Chung back and let's do a whole episode. Because sweat rates, fluid balance, that is a huge, complex conversation that they're still figuring out. Mm-hmm. You know, people really thought, you know, we got this figured out that no, now they're, they're, they're questioning in the research. Some silly questions, like there was a scientist a few years ago who said that actually drinking water was not performance enhancing. Like you should not drink fluid at all when you exercise. And that was kind of silly. I'm just going to start with an overall perspective on sweat that will hopefully give some context for everything we're talking about. And that is our bodies want to sweat efficiently. Efficient sweating means that any fluid that your body pushes out on the surface of your skin gets evaporated. If a sweat drop falls off of you, it didn't serve its purpose. (laughs) Right, right. Because the idea is your body's trying to take heat from the core 
get it out of the core, get it out of the body. The way to do that is to generate a temperature gradient between the core and the surface of your skin. How do you cool down your skin? You put fluid on it. That creates the temperature gradient, then all that heat comes from the core, goes through the skin, and then that heat is used to evaporate the fluid. That's how you get rid of the heat. If you don't evaporate that fluid, it didn't serve its purpose. All you're doing is dehydrating yourself and you're not cooling down the core. Right. And we and we did talk a little bit about that with Dr. Chung. If you're swimming at the end of your Zwift session in a pool of your own sweat on the floor, it didn't do much good for you. Likewise, if you're out on the road and your top tube is just crusty from all the sweating you've done, that's lost evaporative cooling sitting there and it hasn't done its job, so to speak. Right. And, and as somebody who's had to clean up those trainer studios <laughs> yes, afterwards. That's right. We did talk about the... Uh, yeah, we talked about that. It's not helping anybody. No. <laughs> Just check, check your stem if you've been doing a lot of riding inside. Yeah. <laughs> so that's really important. I think that was one of his questions is, is there an optimal sweat rate? Right. There isn't. I can't say you should be sweating X amount per hour. It's more if you are keeping your, your core temperature down you are sweating, but it's all evaporating, then you are optimally sweating. That's what you want. You want to come back from a ride and, and be dry. Yeah. And it is something that is trainable. This is part of the reason when you watch top pros, they don't seem to have a ton of sweat on them. When somebody gets off the couch and gets on the bike or goes for a run, they're drenched because their bodies haven't learned how to sweat optimally yet. One of the top questions he had is, what is the relationship of sweat rate to intensity? Is it a linear relationship? That's a tough one to answer. I did find a chart that obviously showed when you are exercising, sweat rate goes way up. There did seem to be a somewhat straight line relationship between intensity uh, and sweat rate. But again, what I'm going to say is this is a, a trainable thing. And your body is trying to get to that point, again, of efficient sweating, where everything is evaporated, everything is used. So if you are, if your sweat rate is well-trained, then yeah, as your core temperature goes up, your body's going to try to get rid of that heat. It's going to increase your sweat rate proportionally to get rid of as much of that heat as it can and to maintain your temperature. If you're less trained, uh, I remember reading a long time ago that somebody who's coming off of the couch and goes and exercises, the body just turns on the, the faucet. Mm -hmm. It's, uh-oh, yep. core temperature is going up and just starts sweating like crazy. Right. And so probably less adaptive. I think one of the big notes about this comes back to what we, we started with, which is sweat rate is inexorably tied to core temperature. And what we do know and there's some really, really cool data, cool data out of uh, Doha World Championships 2016 cycling where they, they had cyclists swallow uh, thermometer pills. And what you see is in the short, intense efforts, the temperature is going through the roof. Core temps going way up through the roof. So in the individual TT, the core temperatures were up for some people above 40 degrees Celsius, which is super high. So that intense training and intense efforts is going to drive core temperature way up. 
So we probably will see an increase in sweat rate to try to bring that core temperature down. So in the research, they had always said you hit 40, if your core temperature hits 40 degrees, you're in heat stroke, right? you're done. Yeah. Your body shuts down. It stops. Yeah. And that's when they took untrained athletes or some, you know, just fit people, put them on a trainer, got their temp core temperature up to 40. Yeah. They shut down. They couldn't keep going. But these world champion top level athletes were, were getting over 41. Yep. Yep. which was extraordinary. Yeah, and again, the variability of those core temps at that study was massively amazing too. You had Massively people, amazing? Massively amazing, yeah. You had medal winners that core temperature was up uh, 41.5 mm-hmm. degrees Celsius. And then you had people that won medals that were at 39. That's a huge difference. Another thing to point, so you brought up before the whole concept of weather. Weather is actually going to be a huge factor in this. So we just talked about gradients. So Grant, you said you're going back to school. So so get used to the term gradient. <laughs> <laughs> when you study exercise physiology, I think one of the driving principles is the concept of gradients. And, and that's probably one of the driving principles of physics, which is nature hates a gradient. So that's the good old, if you take a jug of salt water and a jug of tap water and you connect them, eventually you're going to end up with two jugs of somewhat salty water. Right. Because nature goes, I've got a a salt gradient here. Let's make them the same. So that's how your body gets rid of the core temperatures. It creates a temperature gradient from your core to your skin. But to evaporate that water, there actually has to be another gradient. You have to have a lower fluid density in the air compared to at the skin. Meaning if you are in a really humid environment, it's really hard to evaporate the water because the air is already quite right, full of water. Right. It doesn't ta- want to take it out. And that's where you get in trouble because your body goes, okay, I'm sweating, but for some reason I'm not cooling down. So what's my way of dealing with not cooling down? I keep sweating. So I'm going to sweat more. And that's why when you're in hot, humid environments, you start sweating like crazy and it's all dripping off of you. It's not being effective. You're not evaporating it. Likewise, that is actually a major issue for for swimmers. Swimmers can actually severely dehydrate because they don't know, but they're sweating like crazy, but none of it's evaporating. Mm -hmm. The ambient environment, which is all fluid, just strips you off. And 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 this is one of the danger points in training in warm water. Yeah, and and this has been well documented in open water with Fran Crippen's death. We had an open water race in the Middle East, and the and the temperature of the water was in the 90s. Mm. Just you can't hydrate fast enough. Yeah, and so it FINA ended up changing all the rules based on water temperature uh, and and trying to prevent those things in the in the future. But we'll go through a myriad of options to try to keep people cool in those temperatures, whether it be Tylenol, whether it be ice packs, whether it be uh, cold drinks, everything. I mean, we're handing out frozen latex gloves for them to shove in their suits. And just to back up for a second and emphasize how hot it got inside some of the bodies of these athletes in Doha, 41.5, if you haven't done the calculation, 41.5 Celsius is 106.7 Fahrenheit. So yeah, if you had a fever and you were running a 41.5 or 106.7 fever, you'd be dead. So, you know. Or at least in the hospital. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> Sounds so all, like you'd be dead. All you high school students out there, if you want to skip a day of school, go out and do an hour-long time <laughs> trial on the heat, and then come back and have your mom check your temperature. <laughs> yeah. 
All right, let's get back to some of these other questions from Ernest. What is the relationship of the sweat rate to the percentage of dehydration? I believe we sweat less if we are already dehydrated, so could there be a sweet spot? Well, let's just give the the obvious point of when you are sweating, you are losing fluid so that it will eventually lead to some sort of dehydration. I think the question is getting at when do you get when you get outside of healthy ranges. So your body is getting to a point of, of some sort of heat stroke where you're severely dehydrated. Yeah, then it gets really dangerous because your body shuts down sweating to preserve fluid, which means it loses its major way of reducing core temperature. I guess this brings up the question in my mind, and maybe this is something uh, too complicated to answer here, but you talk about training sweat rates and training sweating. What's the best way to do that? How do you find that quote unquote sweet spot when your body knows how to sweat just enough? Well, this is a really good question for Dr. Dr. Yeah. Chung, who could probably answer better than me, but I think it's like anything else. It's going to adapt with time. Yeah. Is there something that you can do to make yourself an optimal sweater if you're somebody who... An optimal sweater, like a Christmas sweater. Like a... <laughs> if you're an ugly sweater... <laughs> It is just something that develops with time. That on the list for Dr. Chung. But let's ask Dr. Chung. Certainly, I mean, the one thing has been proven, you go to a hot environment, the first thing your body does is turn on the floodgates. You start sweating significantly more. But interestingly, it isn't optimal. You'll start dripping. So it seems almost like it's a short-term maladaptation. If we can increase plasma blood volume, then we have a further road to travel, so to speak, right? If you have more blood volume to start with, you're going to get to a point where you can sweat more along that continuum before we get to that point where he's asking the question where less fluid starts to come out. Mm -hmm. And I think I think the things that I would ask you guys to put on the table for Dr. Chung is, is you know, we're watching marathoners lose two kilograms of body weight over a course of a race. And now we have people starting to question whether that's a benefit Mm. Right. What can you put up with? And you're losing weight. And so you're going to run faster or you're going to climb faster. And where is that sweet spot? And that's a really great question. You know, you'll have high level marathoners lose 2K. You'll have high level marathoners lose 1K. Another really important thing that we've, we probably should have brought up at the beginning, but I think there's a good point to bring it up. We talk about fluid loss in terms of you lost a liter or you lost a couple pounds of water. Your body doesn't have a built in scale. It has no idea how much water is lost. Matter of fact, it doesn't even know if it's lost water. What your body monitors is the balance between fluid and electrolytes, which means that if you lost two liters, but you lost proportional levels of electrolytes to maintain os Oh, boy. I went to that word that I cannot pronounce, osmolarity, osmolality. There's one with an R, there's one with an L. Are they the same I thing? always go with osmolarity because it's the only one I could pronounce. Osmolality versus osmolarity. Yeah, the yeah. They are not, but and I can I only no say one. The <laughs> <laughs> we'll cut this part so, too. Oh, we'll, we'll keep this part. This is my potentially misuse because I can't speak English. <laughs> well, you're well, Canadian. You are Canadian yeah. ah, there you go. Hey, I got it from two people on either side of me. This is actually an interesting effect that you see. 
I had this great textbook when I was at school up in Victoria that the back of it had this eight-step process showing how your body responds to fluid loss and electrolyte loss during exercise, which I tossed the textbook. I now regret it just because I want that chart back. Uh, but the short version of that chart is when you are exercising uh, and you are sweating. Sweat is hypoosmotic. You lose more fluid than you lose electrolytes, which means that the fluids inside your body are then going to become more concentrated. So what happens is you start pulling water out of cells to get the osmo... Can we come up with a different word for this? <laughs> to get the concentration well, of the fluid... Factor X. ...outside of the cells back into balance. So then what you see is a, right? a shrinking of your cells. But if you manage this well, at the end of that exercise, even though you've lost some electrolytes, even though you've lost some fluid... The fluid outside of your cells is actually at the right concentration. Now you're going to try to use the word. There you go. So are the cells, even though the cells have been shrunk. So your body's going, I'm not too bad a place. Mm -hmm. So what people then do is they finish exercise. They go, well, I need to replenish. Chug a bunch of fluids. Right. So they chug all these fluids and the body goes, oh, well, that's actually going to reduce the concentration, get me out of balance. I don't want this. So I'm going to pee it all out. But in order to pee it out. Urinate. So yes. This is a science to program. Sorry. I need to urinate it out. In order to produce uh, urine, I need some electrolytes. So then you actually start getting rid of more electrolytes. You actually can lose more fluid than you took in and end up less hydrated than if you hadn't drunk anything at all. Right. And there's another piece to that, too. Think about it. Again, we're talking gradients here, right? Everything's yeah. gradients. So now you've got a bunch of electrolyte. If you go a ton of Gatorade, now you have a bunch of electrolytes in your system. The cells are going to put more water into the system to try to balance out the electrolyte right. balance. And now you're stripping even more water out of yourself. So take your time when you're rehydrating. Don't go chugging it. And and you know what? One of the greatest sources for electrolytes, go eat some food. Yep. Mm -hmm. But it is actually more important to make sure you're getting some electrolytes into your system after the exercise than during. Because that's going to help you to pull the fluids back into your system. So as you were saying, eat some food and then drink the water with it. Don't finish the exercise and go, here, hand me that giant bottle of, of right. water with nothing in it. Yeah. Right. yeah. You will, And they have done these studies where you quite literally pee all of it out plus, sorry, urinate <laughs> it all out <laughs> plus more. <laughs> Did we cover all this or? I think that that is, uh, yeah, we did a good job of covering a lot of the general work. General points that Ernest was asking about. So again, let's let's get Dr. Chung back on the program for a deeper dive into sweat rates, dehydration, and so forth. Perfect. And don't cut this. I got to go urinate. All right. The only reason we actually invited you today, Grant, uh, was for this next question because it's about cyclocross. We know you race it. We know you coach it. This isn't really true. We love you. Oh, it's fair. We, br we brought you on for 
your comments about whatever you just said. So wait, we we invited him? I thought <laughs> I just we just walked up. in here no, and you were just, just sitting in the chair, so we went up. with it. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, this guy, he's a coach. I was looking for a haircut, actually, and oh, yeah, I wandered in here. Oh, downstairs. Yeah. All right. Next question from Kelly Klein in Philadelphia. He writes, I'd love to hear your opinion on polarized training and cyclocross. A little background. For the last 24 years or so, I've always relied on sweet spot and or threshold type training. But this year, I started polarizing my training back in January. Last weekend, I did a field test outside on my usual route, and I was astounded by the result. I had my highest 20-minute power ever. I understand that at some point, I'll need to start some more specific training for the upcoming cyclocross season, if that even happens. The question is, how long should I maintain the polarized training before I start with more specificity. I'm guessing that I'll need 48 weeks to prepare. What do you think here, Grant? Well, I think there's a couple pieces to this. I'll, I'll take the last part first. In my curiosity is a little bit of what Kelly means by specificity. and Because I, I tend to look at polarized training as being able to encompass all that specificity, frankly. So I don't know that you need to shift away from a polarized training model at all to enter into cross season, not to mention once you start racing, we get into this really thing with cross where it's race, recover, race, recover, race, recover, which in and of itself is highly polarized. Right. So, you know, for something like cross and, and, and I, I, I'm a heavy, listen, we have multiple camps with coaching, right? We have a sweet spot camp. We have a, you know, uh, intensity. We have all these things. I always tend to be more on the intensity side of camp. And part of why I believe that is I think it can be more entertaining. Uh, a lot of the people I'm working with are master's athletes or young athletes to go ask them to go do sweet spot over and over and over and over again. It can be a little daunting, frankly, can be a little boring. So I like to bring in some of that intensity all throughout the year. Uh, um, Neil Henderson, who I used to work with, referred to it as micro periodization. We're going to look at a week or we're going to look at two weeks and we're going to periodize that segment mm -hmm. so that we're always playing around with an intensity, then recovery, intensity, then recovery. So I love that model for cross. And I think inherently what cross is, we're talking short races, we're talking punchy efforts, we're talking high end recovery needs, we're talking repeatability. And polarized training really falls beautifully into that. Trevor, I think you're going to say something pretty similar to that, aren't you? you? I, I emailed a response. And basically what you just said is very much better version of the response I sent. I, I think what he was talking about with specificity is doing sweet spot work. And my response is if you're doing a three, four-hour road race, uh, you know, then I would say, yeah, you need to do some sweet spot work for that specificity. But cross is short, all high intensity. So I actually, with cross athletes leading into the season, I go super polarized. You're either bleeding from the eye sockets or you're, you know, doing the cycling equivalent of, of crawling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There, there, there is no in between. And particularly during the season, because you're doing two races every weekend, it's kind of destroy yourself on the weekend, maybe get one quality session during the week, but the rest of the time is just super, super easy. Yeah, I really think um, some of what we're talking about in the mindset here is when I'm looking at a pure professional cyclocross athlete, when I'm looking for endurance capability in them, I'm looking for the second race of the weekend. That's kind of what I'm pointing to. 
And I always think it's very odd when we used to have nationals in January. Everybody started complaining. How am I supposed to get hours through Christmas? How am I supposed to get hours through Christmas? And I'd always sit there and go, don't. Get on the trainer. Rip hour-long sessions, 90-minute sessions. Float outside every once in a while. And don't overdo it. You're training for a single 45-minute race. You don't need to recover. Yeah. Be able to punch over and over and over and over again. And and I think this comes back to one of the discussions we've had on this show before. How do we train professional athletes versus how do we train master's athletes? And I think Trevor brings up a beautiful point. If you're doing a three- to four-hour road race, yes, sweet spot is very, very important. But I would even venture to question how many of us are doing three to four hour road races that often anymore? Good point. Especially here in Colorado. So if we're playing around with cross and crits and and even time trials to an extent, they're not overly long. So let's have some fun with this polarized model. Let's hit some stuff in the middle of it and really make sure we're training cat threes, masters riders, and youth riders to what it is they're going to go race and not train them like a world tour athlete. All right. Our next question is from Daniel Hopper, and he's in Australia. He writes, In a recent episode, you were talking about differences in Ross between elite and non-elite athletes, and it got me thinking. Has any comparison study been done between the two groups where exercise is normalized to their normal durations? I think on a population level, training volume would be a factor with individual genetics, making the difference within an individual population. For example, a five-hour ride isn't exactly a normal load for anyone other than a pro. You would know yourself from experience that if you do a longer session than you're used to, you end up with more soreness, fatigue, and take longer to recover. My thoughts are that if you took an amateur and measured Ross after two hours and compared it to a pro after, say, a four- or five-hour ride, they'd be a lot more alike. Further to that, if you were to take an amateur and over the course of a year or so, brought their load up to five hours, that the Ross numbers for a five-hour ride would reflect that of the pros. I've heard a number of long-distance triathlon coaches tell athletes stepping up to elite racing and full-time training that it takes a year of full-time training before you can effectively train full-time. Trevor, I'll turn it over to you. This is There's not much of a question here, really, but what, what are you seeing in the literature when it comes to Ross, comparisons between amateurs and pros, and what can we decipher from that in terms of, uh, you know, this last point about if you're really needing to step it up, sometimes taking a step back and really doing long rides for a long time helps your body work around that Ross hit more effectively. So we were talking about this before the show, and I've got this nice pretty picture of all the the inflammatory effects and, and oxidative stress. And Grant and I were just saying we're going to just take turns reading parts yeah. of this picture. So I, I've got the IL-1B, TNF-alpha, IL-8, SLP-1, <laughs> uh, phagocytosis, lysis, and proliferation differentiation. So there's your answer. <laughs> We just want to sound smart. I don't actually know what I just read. <laughs> you didn't even so, see say uh, PGC one alpha in there. It's not in here. Well, that's I'm a so shame. disappointed. That's, that, that's why I don't know what I read. There's there's no <laughs> there's no grounding point here. <laughs> I looked back through all the research that we had used for that conversation of Ross of mm -hmm. reactive oxygen species. Interestingly, there was only one study 
that compared amateurs to pros. There were a lot of studies that looked at pros. There were a lot of studies that looked at amateurs, uh, but they looked at them separately. So I don't think you have a case where they were trying to do have amateurs do a pro level of training. As a matter of fact, all of these studies were really looking at the biochemical uh, impacts of training, so often didn't have a training intervention at all. It was basically just do your normal training and we'll see the effects or do a race that you were planning on doing and then we're going to see the effects. There was only one study from 2003, and again, we'll put all these references up. This is one, effects of exercise intensity and training on antioxidant and cholesterol profiles in cyclists that compared pros to amateurs. And by the way, cholesterol actually is is part of the whole antioxidant oxidant system. I'm not going to go into that. But what's important about this is they didn't try to have them equalize. Pros were training on average 24 hours a week. The am- What they were calling amateurs, which was actually more kind of a cat two level cyclist, they were training about 14 hours per week. And the pros, they measured their oxidative stress after a major stage of the Volta Ciclista al Mallorca. Thank you. Again, I can't speak. Well, that's not English, so that's fine. (laughs) After they did a stage of that, where with the amateurs, they had them get in the lab and do some testing and measure them. So they really tried to say, no, we're going to look at you doing your normal level of stress. And even there... They found that the pros training harder, doing a harder event, had better antioxidant, natural antioxidant defense mechanism. There was another study. So going further to his question of uh, if you had it equivocal, would you know he feels that the amateurs you would see equal antioxidant defense. That's just not really showing up. And one of the studies that I found very interesting considering the fact that what you see in a lot of amateurs is they tend to go shorter and they tend to do a lot of high intensity, was a study that looked at the effects of short, high-intensity bouts on the development of antioxidant defense mechanisms. And what they found was, and this was in amateurs, that it improved their performance but there was zero development in their natural antioxidant defense mechanisms. So what I, what basically what this study shows, what several of the other studies pointed out, is the best way to develop your antioxidant defense mechanisms is long, slow volume. We're looking at what high-intensity sessions tend to do in terms of regular breakdown and how we feel. Um, Yes, intensity, there's two ways to stress the body. One's intensity, one's volume. But uh, there's two ways to do volume too, right? You know, you can do low intensity volume and the body's going to respond very, very quickly in a lot of different ways. You could do short, high intensity, intensity, and it beats the body up. It's going to struggle to find ways to balance it. We've asked, been asked a bunch of times, what are the benefits of this long, slow volume? Are there ways to shortcut that? I still love one of my favorite questions I ever got several years ago was, I am totally sold on what you're saying. I get now that I need to do this long, slow volume, 
But you're pointing out a lot of the benefits were towards the end of the ride. Is there any way I can skip the first two, three hours of the ride and just get the benefits of the later half? And you're like, so you're asking me if you, you're saying you're sold on, on long, slow volume, but can you get the benefits by doing short, high intensity? <laughs> can I just uh, take my five-hour ride from which the benefits derive and make it a two-hour ride? Yes. So this is one of those cases where there is a, a, an important benefit to be achieved that really you're seeing it's got to do volume to mm -hmm. get those benefits. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like hoping that one of those ab machines that, you know, shocks your abs is going to give you great abs. You kind of got to do the work. Yeah. Yeah. You got to do the work sometimes. The specific work. And that that's really true with those long, low intensity volume rides. And long is relative to the individual. Yeah. But what Trevor's starting to note is with some of the ROS, it may be very specific to the actual length of that volume. This episode of Fast Talk is brought to you by Whoop. Whoop is offering 50% off with the code FASTTALK. That's F-A-S-T-T-A-L-K at checkout. Go to Whoop, that's W-H-O-O-P dot com, and enter FASTTALK at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, and train smarter. Optimize your performance with Whoop. All right, let's move on to our next question, which comes from another frequent writer, Devin Knickerbocker of Seattle. Keep those great questions coming, Devin. This one he asks, in the episode on VLA Max with Sebastian Weber, one thing that wasn't mentioned was why exactly is it that having a higher VLA Max means your endurance performance suffers? In running, we used to think that your lactate accumulation would basically, quote, overwhelm your ability to process it. We didn't know anything about all this stuff, but it intuitively made sense. Is something like that the explanation? Or is it rather that if your glycolytic system is relatively more dominant, it is used more at every intensity intensity level, it fatigues faster than your lipolytic energy production, and when it does, there's less lipolytic power there to pick up the slack. So Trevor, I'll start with you here, since I know you're uh, you know well-versed in VLA Max, having spoken with Sebastian quite a bit. To cover all the factors here, this is another, this would be an entire episode, mm -hmm. and it might actually be a good one for an entire episode. Yeah, yep. We're now going to dramatically simplify mm -hmm. and just cover one aspect of it. We could go deep into acid production and buffering mechanisms. We can even actually talk about efficiency and using, uh, using fat versus carbohydrates or fuel and a whole bunch of other factors. And I was just like, no, let's, this is a Q&A, let's keep it simple. So... I'm going to focus on talking about just fast twitch muscle fibers. VLA max is the anaerobic equivalent of VO2 max. It's a rate. So it's your max rate of, of, produce, of producing lactate. Or more, this is where you can get into the details, your max rate of pumping lactate out into the blood, which is relevant because within your cells, your body does glycolysis. The end product of glycolysis is either lactate or pyruvate. If your cells can use that, so if you have a good aerobic system, it's producing that lactate or pyruvate. 
but it's not being pumped out into the blood. It's being taken up by the Krebs cycle and then used aerobically. So when people talk about, this is one of my little pet peeves, but people talk about anaerobic versus aerobic glycolysis. No, glycolysis is anaerobic. It's always anaerobic. What they mean by that is anaerobic glycolysis is you get to the end, you have pyruvate or lactate, and the body goes, or that cell goes, well, I can't do anything with this. I'm going to pump it out into the blood. That's anaerobic glycolysis. Aerobic glycolysis is you get to the pyruvate or lactate, and the cell goes, yeah, I can now use this uh, in the Krebs cycle aerobically. So I'm not going to pump it out. I'm going to use it myself. That's going to go into the mitochondria. We're going to use it. That's what they call aerobic glycolysis. My point is always there was no oxygen used in glycolysis. That was anaerobic. It's just what you're doing with the end product. Okay, so you're going to watch me squirm a little here because, like I said, I'm trying to keep this as simple as possible. Now let's talk about fiber types. You have slow-twitch muscle fibers. They are giant aerobic engines. They obviously have some glycolytic pathways, but they're really trying to produce all of the bulk of their energy aerobically. So when you're talking about pumping lactate out into the blood, uh, which is what the VLA Max is all about, you're not really talking about slow-twitch muscle fibers. They are not contributing. They take up lactate. They don't pump it out. So now we're talking about fast-twitch muscle fibers. All fast-twitch muscle fibers in the human body can produce energy both anaerobically and aerobically. So we used to talk about two A's and two B's. And we'd say, well, two B's are the ones that are purely anaerobic. Two B's exist in animals. They don't exist in humans. We have what are called 2X. So even our big, mostly anaerobic muscle fibers can be forced to work a little bit aerobically, which is one of the reasons you can make a strong argument that humans are the most aerobic animals on the face of the planet. Another good reason for that is we sweat. Animals that don't sweat can't go very long because eventually they overheat. So sorry, that's, that's a little bit of a tangent. But let's talk about the two A's and the two X. They can all do some aerobic metabolism, but when you're talking about the 2X, it's pretty minimal. They're big lactate producers. They're going to pump it out. So once you start going hard and, and they get activated, they're pumping a lot of lactate out. When you're talking about those 2As, they're very flexible. They can either become highly anaerobic and act more like a 2X, uh, which point they're going to be producing a lot of lactate and pumping it out into the blood, or they can act more like a slow-twitch muscle fiber, build their aerobic machinery, and then they're going to use most of their end products or a lot of their end products of glycolysis, and they're not going to pump a lot of, uh, of uh, lactate out into the cell. So that is why his question is, why can't you improve both? Why is it kind of an, uh, an either-or? You're looking at these fast-twitch muscle fibers that are either going to move one direction or the other direction. They move in one direction. VLA max is going to go up, but their aerobic machinery has been reduced. So you're not going to have as good uh, a threshold. You're not going to have as good a VO2 max in, in this particular conversation. If they go the other way, you are going to really improve your aerobic machinery, but their ability to pump lactate out into the blood is going to be reduced, and your VLA max is going to go down.
So that's as, as simple an explanation as I could I could come up with. I hope that all made sense. Grant, are you awake? No, I I I like where Trevor goes with that because it goes to the base, the very basis of the the issue at hand, which is the muscle fibers. And and a lot of times that discussion doesn't go down to the muscle fibers. People want to deal with it in terms of an aerobic or anaerobic mixture of producing energy, so to speak, right? And I, I there is some interesting research out there on when people abandon their most efficient product or uh, pathway of producing energy. And uh, it's it's really low. I mean, it's a really low percentage of total uh, energy, total effort. You know, it's 55 to 65%. I mean, it's really down. So where that gets abandoned and you start pulling in the less efficient model for you. And so some of this stuff, if you come out of the musculature and you start looking at the, the bigger picture, the, the wider view, and this is an incredible simplification. And it's one of the biggest struggles with, with this topic is that the things that people want to talk about, aerobic versus anaerobic, is already in and of itself an incredible simplification, right? So if we start talking about that mixture, though, um, there is some evidence that's showing that people with the highest VO2 maxes are some of the less efficient athletes. And so that balance between the two, they don't really, I don't think there's been a lot of research on why. Though, and that's one of the questions he's asking. I don't know how much we have in the literature, and this is this is for Sebastian for sure. You know, where is the literature on why that shift takes place? We know we can train either or, and we can make a change in either or, but we don't necessarily know why, other than the musculature and the muscle fiber that Trevor's talking about, why we see that really change in, in how we want to use the mixture uh, of energy. I... So this is getting philosophical, but I always go back to the thrifty gene hypothesis, which is that we evolved in a caloric scarcity. So we are always trying to figure out how to maximally use the, the calories that were available to us. If you think about it, if we didn't have these, why would we ever detrain? The, your best chance of survival is to be as big as possible, as strong as possible, have as big a VO2 max as possible. We know these things can be improved. Why would your body ever say, well, let's reduce those things? Because then if an animal attacks you, you have less chance of survival. That sounds like a great idea. Uh, the reason for that is any of these things that you develop, it requires energy. So your body only wants to develop something if you can use it. And one theory that I read was if you look at the nature of the way humans hunted, you actually had hunters divided into two groups. There was one group that tended to put in the chase and try to wear down the animals. And then there was another group that would then go in for the kill. You lead out and then you have a sprinter, mm -hmm. right? So if you're the guy who goes in for the kill, you wanna be strong, you wanna have big muscles, you don't really need that much aerobic machinery. If you're the guy that's doing the chase for a while, getting the animals to the person who goes in for the kill, you need aerobic machinery, but you're not the one doing the kill. You don't need to be that strong. So hence, there is a, a benefit to say, let's develop one way or the other, but not have the caloric needs of both. 
So just so Sebastian doesn't accuse us of oversimplification, let me just read here. Increased differentiation, myOD and myogenin expression, increased necrosis, IGF-1, HDF, folistatin, nitric oxide, IL-6. What is that? You didn't, you didn't, even, you didn't even take any words out of that. You just read it. <laughs> I literally read that. What is it? I, where am I? What, what's the graph that I'm looking at? <laughs> Can we put Sebastian on speed dial? No, no, no. All right, yes, let us move on to a question about big gear work in bad terrain. It comes from Christopher Lyons. We don't actually know where Christopher Lyons lives, but it must be a flat place. His question, I was really interested in episode 101 in the value of, quote, sweet spot high torque intervals as described by yourself and Dr. Sebastian Weber for a time trialist such as me. My question is, how do I execute these properly? I have tried on the road, but I don't have any hills that have a sustained grade, or gradient, if you will, that matches my desired wattage and cadence. They're either too steep or too short. It seems the flats would not give me a high enough power. So a couple questions for him. Is there a way I can set this up on Zwift? And if my FTP is between 290 and 300 watts, is 270, 275 the correct intensity? Trevor, I'll start with you. I know you've already emailed Christopher, but let's uh, open it up for a broader discussion that will help other listeners out there. What do you think? I'm, I'm going to be very quick because I'm really interested in hearing what Grant has to say because this is one of those, I, I don't think we're going to be quoting a lot of science. It's more experience and opinion. Sure. I said before, I am a big fan, or I prefer big gear work outside. Mm -hmm. I think it's best on a climb. And my reasoning being, there is a form component to this. And I think when you're locked in on a bike, on a trainer, you lose some of that benefit. So I like to have my athletes focus on staying steady on the bike. So it's not just doing big gear training, but don't be rocking all over the place. Mm -hmm. And that's better outside. You're engaging the core more outside, whereas if the bike is just static, it's locked in very tightly into a trainer or some kind of setup, or you're on a bike that doesn't move at all because it's purpose-built for indoor stuff, Zwifting, whatever. There's no need for engaging those other muscle groups. And, and so technique is not so important there. Trainers doing a lot of the work for you. The reason I like the hills are two reasons. One is they have shown there are slight neuromuscular differences on a climb. And one of them is you put power out through a greater range of the pedal stroke, which is what I want you doing when you're doing big gear work. Second one is practical. Uh, it's a little unsafe to be putting out mm -hmm. 300 plus watts at 40 RPM going 25 miles an hour in traffic. Yeah. Going right. up a hill is slower and it's safer. Yeah. Yeah. So those are my reasoning, but obviously we're, we have somebody who, who's dealing with it. I'd had to deal with this in Toronto. The biggest hill anywhere close to me was about two and a half minutes. So my solution was I would actually start about a minute and a half from that hill because I would be building up speed, but still going slow for a while because let me tell you starting from almost zero mm -hmm. at 30 rpm you don't speed up quickly mm -hmm. it's a very gradual thing by the time i was getting some speed i'd hit the hill 
and then that would slow me down and I'd hit the top of the hill at about five minutes and, and that worked okay. Not as good as being on a hill, but I, I could get some five minute intervals doing that. Other things you can do to slow yourself down or ride a a non-road bike, basically. Mm -hmm. Something with more re rolling resistance, whether it's a cross bike, gravel bike, mountain bike. Grant, what what do you got? Uh, I got a bunch of things. I think I think Trevor brings up a great point of doing an inside versus outside. But if you, if you have to be inside, a couple of things that you can do to really force yourself to pay attention to technique, uh, put a mirror in front of you. Mm. You know, really take a look at what you're doing with your upper body, what you're doing with uh, how your knees are going in and out, where your hips are moving, what your position looks like on that bike. Uh, I think a mirror on the trainer is one of the highly most underutilized uh, technical things that we can do. You can fix a lot of pedal stroke issues just by looking in the mirror and forcing yourself to change. You did this a lot recently in the past months, didn't you, when you were yeah. in training inside? Well, and more, I, more for looking at your hair. Well, I, I had to set up a fan. You had two fans either flow. side. Yeah, that's what right. you were going to say. Right, right. And then I put a little Enya on in the background. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I do a lot on the trainer anyway. You know, I have two kids and how we we have our time to go do a set of intervals it's hard to get 30 minutes out to where I need to do the intervals, do the intervals, 30 minutes home. I don't have that kind it's of time. just more efficient inside sometimes. Right. So I hop on the trainer and I'll get on Zwift and I'll knock them out. So using the mirror is a really, really big piece of it. I think another one that's a, a hugely big piece of it, because I don't think this is necessarily recognized, when we're on a trainer, you can cheat a little bit. You can get on that dominant leg and lean on it because it doesn't upset the balance of what you are on the bike because the trainer's doing the work. So if you have a power meter that's measuring right-left balance, especially in real time, this is a beautiful thing to take a look at. Don't compare yourself to the pros. Compare yourself to yourself. Where do you break down with your left-right balance? Where do you break down at intensities? You know, I happen to be wildly imbalanced. We'll go with that. You're uh, totally imbalanced. I can I am. To that. Oh, man. My osmolarity is wicked imbalanced. <laughs> um, but but I, at low intensities, I'm very unbalanced. Mm. At LT or above, I'm very balanced. I'm 50-50. Yeah. So just looking at some of those things. Are I good. think that's not uncommon. No, that is fairly common because you dial in at, at an effort and, and things start to come together. But using the mirror and using your left, right. And it's the, using the mirror, you see this with weightlifters. So they're making sure their technique is proper. So, you know, put it in front of you while you're Zwifting. See if your knees are collapsing yep. one side or the other, et cetera. Yeah. And I think there's a lot that can go along with that. One of the other things that we can talk about just as a, as a usefulness is wind. You know, we're, we're, we're talking about ways to ride a bike that's going to increase the resistance you could wear clothing that increases the resistance. I mean, remember the reason we're in spandex is aerodynamics, mm -hmm. right? So are can... you suggesting people wear jeans to ride their bikes for their big gear work? I was thinking parachute pants. Parachute yeah. pants. <laughs> I was thinking windbreakers. Zuba pants. Yeah, man. I, th I, like, I know Chris has a couple pairs of those in his, <laughs> in his closet, so you could probably get his. Even position on the bike. You know, if you're climbing, you're probably going to be on the tops. So it's okay to be on the tops on the flat, increase the wind resistance, increase some of those things, find a headwind, ride into a headwind. Mm -hmm. um, it's a little inconsistent, but a lot of climbs are a little inconsistent too. I think one of the really interesting things that I would think of in this is very anecdotal, but most people, if you start to pay attention to it, and I think this shows up very, very 
intensely on Zwift. Are you happier in the big ring? Or are you happier in the small ring? Um, if you get on a climb on Zwift and I'm in the small ring, I feel like I have to mash the pedals to get to the power that I want to get to. But if I'm on a flat, I'm in the big ring, how I'm spinning that, I can get exactly where I want to power-wise with RPMs. So understanding who you are and how that balance goes, you know, that that can play into some of what Trevor is asking for and what we're asking for with these high torque sweet spot efforts, you may find yourself being able to get on Zwift and be on a climb on Zwift and inherently go to that high torque. You just have to then pay attention to your form and your balance. In terms of outside, I think one of the things that's missed here is that we can break these things up very, very well. Four minute efforts doing multiples of them is going to create a very similar response to a single 20 minute or 30 minute effort. Uh, as long as you keep the rest low and you're right back into the effort. All right, let's get to our next question, which comes from Mike Pugh. He writes, and this is a multi-part question. We'll take them one at a time. I've listened to a bunch of your podcasts where you mentioned various recovery tools, such as compression boots and massage as being very effective. I was wondering if you could go into more detail on the protocols for using these tools. For example, is it better to put the boots on right after a workout or wait an hour or two and do it right before bed? Trevor, we'll start with you here. What do you think? I think you're going to have coaches who are going to swear by all of these. Do it right after, do it two hours later, do it before bed. Uh, so I did try to look for any research on this. I didn't really find a specific, let's look at the timing. So this is a bit of a thought experiment. And I'll give my very, very short answer. And then and Grant, I think it'd be fun to discuss this. But when you're looking at the whole repair cycle, let's simplify it down to a couple steps. Immediately after exercise, your body is just trying to restock glycogen. So it's trying to get glucose to the working cells. It's probably trying to get rid of some, some end products, probably have some residual vasodilation that's improving blood flow. Uh, that's immediate. A couple hours later is when you see the inflammatory process start, where your immune system goes in, tries to get rid of dead or dying or damaged cells, tries to clear everything out, get ready for the, the proper repair, and the proper repair is, is much later. My short answer to this, I found a few studies that said that these compression boots uh, can transiently increase PGC1-alpha. Ooh, there it is. We found it. mRNA, so basically the expression of it. It can help with read. So this like bringing the whole episode to get back together. Uh, it will actually increase uh, redox-related protein expression. So hence all those terms I was using before. So basically, it will help with antioxidant defense mechanisms, and it will also help promote anti-inflammatory responses. So based on this, my thought experiment is probably don't want to use it right after exercise right. because you're actually interfering with that transient improved vasodilation. Mm -hmm. uh, I could see it actually interfering with the process a bit. Uh, it could help during that inflammatory stage because one thing that does happen is sometimes that inflammatory stage is too much 
and just does damage. So this could help promote moving from the damaging inflammatory phase to the, the anti-inflammatory stage, which is where a lot of the repair work happens. And then I would say at any point during that whole repair work phase could help. I did find another study that also showed that it's more frequency than intensity or timing that seems to be beneficial. So there's a bit of an argument of if you can do it all three times, maybe do it all three times. Hmm. Though I would still, my gut is probably not right after exercise. Right. Yeah. I, I think first it might interfere with the process you're talking about. And there's probably more important things you could and should be doing at that point anyway. So give your, give your body a chance to go through that process, eat some food, do the other things first, and then hit the boots when, you know, it's more convenient in some ways. But Grant, what are your thoughts? And that could very much include why would you use these things? What's wrong with you? So they've done studies on boots. We've done studies on uh, ice baths. We've done studies on massage guns. We've done studies on, and um, there's really not a lot of research that says performance goes up. Mm -hmm. What you're really going to play around with here is some of the things that are occurring on the peripheries. So inflammation is a really interesting way to look at this to say, when do we want inflammation in musculature? And when do we want to get rid of inflammation in musculature? You go out and you do a hard workout, you're going to get inflammation in musculature. It wants to repair itself. And this is how we get better, right? This is how we get stronger. We tear the muscles up. This is again, oversimplified, but you tear the muscles up and then you build them back up a little bit stronger. Inflammation is what provides that. The other piece to this that I think is really, really interesting, again, this works on the peripheries. What does it do to the parasympathetic and the nervous system? Um, one of the biggest battles after hard exercise or after racing, this is where ice baths come into play, that we've seen some benefit. It really allows the parasympathetic nervous system to kick in. It's gonna help core temperature come down. This is an ice bath. It's gonna help people sleep better. And then by the combination of things, if you sleep better, you're going to recover better. If your core temperature is down, you're going to be able to recover better. The boots have some of that same thing. So, and I, I don't know if you've ever gotten in the boots, not immediately after exercise, middle of the afternoon, I feel like Normatex always put me to sleep. It really <laughs> is this, it is this calming idea. And when we traveled and did the cross races out in China, that was something one of the athletes brought them along and we would just cycle through everybody 20 minutes right before bed and um, draws everything out, calms the body, calms the mind. Parasympathetic nervous system can kick in and we get some repair. So there's potentially here an intangible benefit to some of these recovery tools that doesn't show up in the literature yet. There could be a placebo effect. Sure. There could be a lot of these things that it doesn't really matter what the literature says. If they f make you feel better, if they make you sleep better, those are really good things in the grand context of helping your quote unquote recovery. Absolutely. And I think we're going to touch on this as we go through it a little bit. I hate foam rollers. I do not like to be in that amount of pain. Yeah. It's really uncomfortable to me. And it spikes me up. It stresses me out. My heart rate goes up. I don't enjoy it. Yeah. By contrast, my wife loves the feeling of a foam roller. She loves to lay on it. You could see her grimacing. And then the next thing out of her mouth is, oh, I feel so good. And I'm looking <laughs> at her going like, you're nuts. Yeah. Right, I, right. So, so how it makes you feel is going to drive your recovery without a doubt. Yeah. Great. Next question that he asks here is, 
what can someone do to dial in the pressure used with the boots? Manufacturers are a bit vague on this, and it's one of those, quote, feel things. But how did the studies land on a certain pressure for their participants? Trevor? Any, any evidence here to suggest what is the right pressure for an individual? I was looking for one study that did, I remember a while ago reading, that did look at appropriate pressure. Uh, and I think I can remember the number, but I couldn't find the study. But let's first, so, so you know, there are different types of these boots, and it gets quite technical. So you have what's called external pneumatic, pneumatic compression. Another word I struggle with. Pneumatic. EPC. Then you have external counterpulsation, EECP. There's intermittent pneumatic compression, IPC. And sequential peristaltic pulse. Yeah. Boy, I'm picking unfriendly words for me today. (laughs) Pulse, EPC. These are all stupid English words that don't look like pneumatic. Come on. Look at how that thing's spelled. (laughs) So look, the, let's simplify these down. The, the different versions are static, so it puts on compression and then just stays compressed. Sure. There is the tourniquet su- style, right? The super high compression, which hurts like hell. And then there's what the Normatex are, which are lower compression. It's not high compression, and it's sequential. So it'll start at your feet and move up. Yes. What I have read in the research is that is where most of these devices are moving towards. The the IPC, I think it's the IPC, or no, it's the EECP that can get really painful, where they get up to around 300 uh, milligrams H, mmHg. So, mm-hmm. And that just hurts. So what they were finding was there was really, when you use these staged forms, like the Normatex, and use them at lower pressure, you really saw all the same gains you saw with the really high-pressure painful ones. And so they tend to be around 120 uh, mmHg. One thing that hopefully is obvious to people is that something like Normatex actually come in different sizes. Yes. So you want to get a size that's appropriate for your body type. And of course, that means if you're sharing it with other people, it might not be appropriate for them. But that changes. I mean, they constrict at a certain rate for the certain size. And if your leg is gigantic and your wife's is much smaller, then it's going to provide a completely different amount of pressure to those muscles. Yep. in the given scenario. So that's you, just something to keep in mind. You're talking about somebody in specific? <laughs> I have skinny legs. Jess has skinny yep. legs. So. I was talking about my family. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, I bet. <laughs> anyway, uh, I think I think one of the things to keep in mind here is is the general purpose of compression. Take a step back, freshman biology in high school, how do we move blood in veins from the contraction of the musculature around it, which squeezes the vein, and they have a valve that doesn't let any blood go backward. There's no active movement of blood in venal flow. So one of the places where the boots really do provide opportunity and help on a plane, in a car, at a desk, places where you are stuck and you are not going to be able to get a lot of movement to promote venal flow. So when we talk about pressure though, and Trevor alluded to this a little bit, you don't need an immense amount of pressure to create venal flow and just junk flow to keep it really simplified, right? You don't need a lot. So 
This isn't one of those cases where harder is better or if it hurts more, I'm going to get more out of it. Be willing to enjoy it. Be yeah. willing to get yeah. some of that yeah. out of it. And this is part of where the massage comes into it too. Gentle, you know, smooth massage can help a lot. You don't need to dig in and tear into stuff. Yeah. We don't need to do damage to get benefit. And but, you'll see people put their legs up on walls sure. and gravity can help here. And Absolutely. sometimes you can do both. Put Absolutely. Normatex, put your legs in the Normatex, put your heels up, rest them on the wall, and you'll get gravity and Normatex working in your benefit and and do that combination. And watch your significant other slowly back out of the room. <laughs> <laughs> Wonder what's going on. You alluded to this with size. Some of those, if you get them in the wrong size, it actually creates some pinch points, mm -hmm. right? It's going to squeeze yeah. in the wrong spot, which is the opposite of what you want to happen. Yeah. So be aware of that a little bit. But another, on the flip side, another important thing to point out is a commercially available product like the Normatex is not going to get anywhere close to the sort of pressure you'd see in the medical product. Yeah, so if you're right. worried the the highest setting is going to cause some sort of damage, no, it doesn't get anywhere close to that. So if you enjoy that highest setting, Yeah, fine. right. Like I, I, awesome. I put my Normatex on as high as they can go and I'm fine with it. My dad, similar size to me, much older. Maybe that has something to do with it. Obviously, he's much older than me. He's my dad. Um almost 80 at this point, he's like on a one or two. If you go higher than that, he's he's squirming. He's, you know, making a fuss, being all dramatic. There it is. Final part to the question here. Massage guns. They're great, but just turning it on and jamming it at your muscles probably isn't the right approach. Do certain tips or attachments make more sense than others for recovery after specific types of training sessions? Any resources for finding a good routine? Trevor, do you have any experience with massage guns? I have one for my neck. Okay. Which feels really good. Sure. And that's about all that I think about it yeah, for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a massage therapist who used to work on me, and it was literally out of one of the movies where I told her my, my neck and legs were stiff, and then she tried to massage me and went, oh, my God, <laughs> and then pulls out this giant device that looks like a jackhammer and starts going at me. Industrial strength. I walked in. I had an hour appointment, and she said, what would you like to, to work on? I went, quads and neck. She's like, we got a whole hour. Do you want to work on anything else? I'm like, quads and neck. She <laughs> starts working it. on my neck. She's like, I'm not sure we're getting to your quads. <laughs> Calls up front, cancel all my appointments for today. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> that is about the extent of my experience. She does swear by some of these wands that have the little balls mm -hmm. on the end mm -hmm. that can sure. kind of dig sure. in. To me, I would, I just think, 80% of those products are feel good and that's about it. So I've never spent a ton of time on them. But you do use a foam roller quite often. I've, I'm, I'm the same as, as Grant. I don't enjoy them. Okay. I do need to use them to, to help with my back, to help with uh, some issues I have in my legs. So I before I prefer to stretch, I find that really relaxes me. So before I stretch, I'll do five, six minutes of foam rolling. That's about all I want to do. Mm -hmm. Just hitting those, those key pressure points and then I move on. Uh, but I know people who will spend 30, 40 minutes on a foam roller. Right. And that's your wife and that's my wife. Yeah. I wonder yeah. if there's anything to that, like gender or being a 
an athlete who trains a lot are our muscles tighter, more sensitive, prone to pains when we're trying to compress it in certain ways that others aren't. So here's the thing. They have been trying to figure this out in the research. We've talked a lot about the research in some of our recovery episodes. Uh, the older research was just silly. <laughs> like they would they would do things like have somebody do a stretch routine and then do a, a 40K time trial. See if it helps. go, well, it didn't improve their performance. So stretching is useless. <laughs> right. You go, well, that's not... The point, are you, do, have you ever actually ridden a bike before you designed this study? Yeah, yeah. You get a real mix. Since they have started identifying what are the potential benefits, one of them is they look at the immunological effects, and they have shown that compression, so foam rolling and things like your, your uh, Normatex, will actually change the immune profile to one that's more anti-inflammatory that will promote more muscle repair. Mm -hmm. So there's benefits there. The other thing is its impact on the whole uh, Golgi tendons. And I always get these things mixed up. But basically, they are sensitive to pressure. That will influence the, the recovery process. So what they're finding was, so these all fit into the category of compression. What they find is it, it act. I think it's your Golgi tendons that it activates, and that then promotes the muscle to loosen, to relax. That can allow the muscle, to, it, 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 like I said, changes the inflammatory profile. So there are actual mechanisms that are happening here. But I would say the research is very early uh, because they've only really identified what impacts it's having. So I think we'll we'll probably see some exciting research that really says here here's what's most beneficial here's how to do it best. I think a lot of this comes back to what we were talking about before. What do you enjoy, and what what allows you to relax? What allows you to feel better? I mean, a huge, you know, maybe placebo, but who really cares? And one of the huge underestimate we talked about that we've talked about this on the show, and we'll talk about it again more. You know. Uh, we can go into the science, we can go into the weeds, we can get down to muscle fibers, we can get into VL, VLM, VLMAX, uh, VO2 max, we can get into all of these things. But, you know, you line up and you don't think you're ready, you're not ready, right? So how you feel is really, really important. What you enjoy, what you don't enjoy. I don't think your recovery should be something that's painful, that you hate. There's times that you have to do those things. Like our PTs, our, our physical therapists are going to tell, yeah, there's going to be times you have to be uncomfortable, right? There's certain stretches that I have to do for my arches and my calves that I don't do them all the time, but when I have to do them, they're uncomfortable. You shouldn't be doing something that every night you dread. Yeah. Right? So let's let's do a methodology that makes you feel good, makes you feel recovered, makes you feel refreshed, and hopefully helps you sleep because uh, that's a really undervalued recovery mechanism. And we are sometimes too quick to see placebo effect as a, a negative. I don't, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I People always go, oh, it's, it's, sorry, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I don't see it as such at all. I think there's a ton of evidence that the placebo effect is an extremely beneficial thing yeah, in really. a lot of instances. Yeah. There have been medical studies where the placebo effect is as powerful as drugs that are prescription only. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. I was reading this when preparing for this episode. I was, I was reading something that uh, Alex Hutchinson had written, and he was citing a study where they were trying to figure out um, 
the benefits of or the lack of benefits of uh, sauna therapy after workouts, right? Mm-hmm. And and one of the things they did that was odd was they said, "You people are going to sit in a massage, or you're going to sit in a in a in a sauna, and you guys are going to rub this special recovery oil on your legs." And it was massage oil. Yeah, it was right. It was just that was their placebo. That was their that was no, that was their control. It wasn't even their placebo. But of course, the study can't take into consideration what effect the special massage oil as a placebo effect is having on that study too. And and that's that's one of the things that we're hamstrung a little bit with even our scientific research is what the human mind is doing with those things that we're looking at. That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at fasttalk at fastlabs.com or record a voice memo on your phone and send it our way. We're looking for more voice memos. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcast. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. And find us on social media. We're at Real Fast Labs. Thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Grant Holicky, Coach Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.